Hey, everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. This week, I'm really excited for this one. We're just over a year out from the 2024 elections. And if you're a regular listener, you probably understand the stakes better than most. One of the most common questions we get is just how far down the rabbit hole is this all going to go? And I often reply uh, with a quote from our friend Stuart Stevens that we, we all lack the imagination to understand just how bad this is, even those of us who understand how bad it is. Just how far Trump and MAGA will go, that is changing, but not fast enough. We're very pleased to have Stu back with us today. As you know, he and I have gone head-to-head for decades, and, uh, and we've always respected each other, though, along the way. We work together every day now, which is like an amazing thing to have happened. Uh, we do it at the Lincoln Project in Resolute Square. And now Stuart's written a new book out called The Conspiracy to End America. And I, I got to tell you, he gets into the, what he, the subtitle says it all, five ways my old party is driving our democracy to autocracy. It's a must read. Uh, we're going to get into the book and his take on the race right now. Stuart, welcome. Great to be here, Joe. Thanks for asking me to the party. Alex, where do you want to get started? Well, I mean, you, you led with it. I mean, we could probably do a whole show just talking about the five ways. So definitely want to start there. So Stuart, before we, we get right into that, and I want you to kind of go through each of them, and then I know Joe has some thoughts too, but talk about, so it was all lie was a bestseller. And from then to now, what has changed and, and why now? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Um, You know, the reason, just to sort of set this up, in 2016, there were a lot of people who were wrong about Trump, but it really is hard to find anybody who was more wrong than me. I didn't think he was going to win the primary or the general. And when that happened, you know, I had a lot of friends in the party that said, well, Trump has hijacked the party. And I wanted to believe that. But the problem I had is, you know, like the hijacker is never popular on the plane, right? Nobody ever says, well, you know, I'm glad we're not going to grandma's house. We're going to get to go to Cuba. And Trump was really popular uh, on the plane. He's popular in the party. So I don't think you can say that he took the party any place the party didn't want to be or go. So um, I asked myself, like, how did I miss this? Uh, Why didn't I see this? And in that old kind of high school English teacher way that if you can't write it, you don't understand it, I started writing. And that ended up being it was all a lie. And there was a moment in October, well, almost exactly this time in 20, when I'd been up for a couple of nights working on spots for the Lincoln Project and looking at data from these key states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Wisconsin, places that, you know, like Joe and I had worked a lot before in the past. And it became clear that Trump was going to lose. And I had this little moment like, okay, great, I can quit doing this. It's over. And had you asked me then, if Trump loses by seven and a half million votes, north of 300 electoral college votes, will the Republican Party accepted, I would have laughed. I would have said, well, we're going to like walk out of the Super Bowl and debate the score? I mean, you may not like it. You may say the ref cheated, but the score is the score. And of course, that didn't happen. And then we saw everything that happened uh, with the uh, coup attempt. And I, I think what really struck me is that there is no line that the party is going to cross that is going to make anyone inside the party, except a few people who we know well now, Mitt Romney or 
uh, Liz Cheney, Kissinger. As a party as a whole, there's no line, there's no principle that Trump is going to cross, that the party is going to cross, that somehow it will revert to what it was, that some new, uh, a, a normalcy will return. And that led me uh, to write this book, because it really struck me there are these, when you read about democracies falling into autocracies, and you know it's not an obscure subject, and there's great work done by brilliant people, you know, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, Jern uh, Mercia, just Timothy Snyder, so many, that there were these five elements that were always present when a, a democracy falls into an autocracy, and they're all present now, and we talk about them individually, but we don't look at the sort of power of them collectively. And that's what led me to write this book. Yeah, so I mean, uh, you know, first of all, for our listeners, Stuart and I were uh, fellows together at the University of Chicago IOP, where he'll claim he he only listened to me, and I'll claim I only listened to him. But I, uh, we both learned a, a lot from each other. But one of the things that I saw was uh, this this raw kind of ability, his insight to to kind of look beyond party, to look at what was, you know, what, what was really um, happening at the time uh, when we were we were fellows there. Uh, and this was in the year I think where where Trump was running. But the more I read this book. The more I think, well, first of all, it was all a lie, was just an amazing, and to me, uh, narrative of, again, that sort of raw, authentic look at what really happened and was happening, and, and, and able to, where Stuart looked at, it, looked at his own role and mapped it all out in a way that I think is very compelling. But this book really, I think, puts the finger on on how the party has put it all together, the five elements that you need to have or that work together when democracies slide into autocracy. I mean, Stuart, you talk about you need propagandists, you need a, a major party support, you need financiers and legal theories that help legitimize it, and then you need shock troops. And so, you know, I think it'd be great if you could go through each one of those and just give us a quick take on, you, you know, on what the part, you know, let's go with propagandists first. I think that's the first uh, uh, chapter in the book. Can you explain what you mean by these five things as we go yeah. through each of them and where the party's at? You know, um, what's fascinating about the propagandists is there is this huge world over there. And as we saw in the Dominion lawsuit, Fox News has almost become the mainstream, <laughs> mainstream right. And Fox was worried about getting losing audience because they weren't chasing the big lie with enough uh, fervor and they were losing audience to Newsmax. But what it allows is it allows people to live in a universe which uh, reinforces their own beliefs. And I think there's a larger trend in society that's you know written about, talked about at great length. We all tend to, for many reasons, consume information now to confirm our opinions, not inform our opinions. And that's really at work here. So what's unique about this moment is how do you end up with a party where 70% or so of the party actually believes that uh, Joe Biden is an illegal president? I mean, that's just sort of a fundamental truth that a democracy, do you think the president's legally elected or not? If you can't say yes to that, you say, I hate the guy, but yeah, he won. Because the essence of any democracy is somebody has to be willing to lose. And sort of part of that is 
you have to be able to admit that the other side might be right. I mean, that that's a that's the yeah. essence of, of democracy. Right. So there is this universe you can live in in which everything that you know that is false is actually true, and it allows you to not have to confront reality. And when you can live in that, it's a very comfortable place to be, and it increasingly divides the country. If 70% of one of the major parties doesn't believe we live in an occupied country, which is what we do if we don't have a legal president, and that's a unique role that the propagandists play now. Support for that trippy show comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is the only software your business will ever need. Featuring a suite of integrated business applications, Odoo connects your business operations together so you get more done in less time. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it. Odoo's got it. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash trippy. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash trippy. The the interesting thing about that, because I hadn't thought about it in that way, I mean, I always talk about, you know, the outrage machine that they built, uh, you know, and how Fox leads the outrage machine. But when you actually think about it and, and how we've never built one, I mean, the pro-democracy side, you know, we've never built one. And when you think about it, it's propaganda, though. There's a reason we never built it. <laughs> we, you know, I mean the the pro democracy side. You know, does, does it, it's not propaganda. So when you start Res, Resolute Square, you're talking about, you know, fighting propaganda with truth or with you know facts or whatever. But it's still it's propaganda you're fighting. Uh, you, you you know, and it's inside a bubble. And and anyway, it, it it really opened my eyes to like, hey, all this, a lot of the things that. Uh, we talk about if you put it in the right context, again, like propaganda instead of just the outrage machine, it makes more sense that they're captured and become part of it and we can't break through. Yeah, and I think it's really important to, to look at that. Why is it that there wasn't a like machine built uh, on the pro-democracy side? And I think the answer is because we assumed that what we would now call mainstream media was that pro, was a proper, was right. a pro-democracy side. So why do we need to have a, a pro-democracy side? Because we have the New York Times, we have the Washington Post, we have serious right. journalists. And I think one of the crises of journalism in the moment, and, and you and I and, and Alex, you know, we've never been journalist haters. And I think most of our journalist friends would agree with this. For Western society and journalism, the greatest good has been assumed to be objectivity. And right. yeah. how do you deal with that when one side has no good faith effort, even a pretense of maintaining the truth? So how do you tell both sides of a lie? Which is what really led us to, to found Resolute Square. And I think it's a something that every journalist has wrestled with. And I think in 2016, there was just this sort of stuttering of what do you do when Donald Trump goes out and announces he's running for president and he's financing his own campaign and you go on his website and there's a big donate button. What do you do with that? <laughs> yeah. And in fact, you know, majority of the money that he spent in his campaign was donations, but he just keeps saying it. I'm funding my own campaign. You know, how, do you just call him a liar? These are all the questions they've had. Yeah. It took him a long time to even say the word liar. Yeah. I mean, it was forever. It's well, you know, some say that, uh, 
you know, he's actually requesting donations. Well, no, he is requesting donations. You can go make one right now. You can prove, you can test this. And I think that's, uh, you know, if you certainly look at, at Hungary and how Hungary uh, fell into an autocracy under Viktor Orban, it was an inability of the press, which represented the majority of the country, to be able to defend its position. And, you know, we know that autocrats always use the benefits of a democracy to kill that democracy. So they use freedom of press to kill right. freedom of press. And it's, it becomes this sort of uh, uh, self-reinforcing cycle. And I think we're still struggling every day with how to deal with this. And it's, it's you know, I think part of this is a failure of language. How, how do we talk about all of this and not sound crazy or alarmist? You know, you say, right. if Donald Trump wins the next election, it will be the end of democracy as we know it in America. I believe that. But you know, had I said that about anybody getting elected president six years ago, I would have thought that I should be committed. You know, like I, 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 I was crazy. But now I think it's true. But doesn't that get to to your second requirement? I mean, it, it doesn't get to, you know, if you have a major party supporting this stuff. Yes. I mean, you know, that 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 amplifies it pushes it out there, plays into the propaganda and feeds it, that that's one of the necessity. I mean, that's what makes it so strong, right? I mean, it's, it's self-reinforcing. So I want to, let's get into that for a second, because it's one of the other things the, that the, you- the key, key point, you know, we've had hate movements in America forever. Father Coughlin in the 30s, uh, the KKK, certainly a hate movement. But we have not had that movement absorbed officially by a major political party. And right now, <laughs> when we woke yeah. up this morning, the official platform of the Republican Party is adopted in 2020 with basically whatever Donald Trump thought. So, yeah. uh, you know, history says that once a major party adopts that hate, it's very difficult to unwind. And, you know, when I've had this argument with my old Republican friends, they'll say, so, Stuart, are you trying to tell me that everybody who voted for Donald Trump is a racist? You know, that they're, they used to say 60-some million racists, now they say 70 million, whatever. Well, first of all, there probably are 70 million racists in America, so we don't, just don't kid ourselves. But I don't think that you have to be a racist to vote for Donald Trump. It just means that you have to be willing to accept that something is more important to you in a president than having a racist as president, because Donald Trump is a racist. And the party has adopted that, and that legitimizes it. And that's why I lay the fault of this not at Donald Trump. Donald Trump is Donald Trump. You know, he's this weird guy from Queens who only has power because the Republican Party never stood up to him. And, you know, in December of 2015, when Donald Trump went out and called for a Muslim ban, if Reince Priebus, chairman of the party then, the party in the whole, said, look, we can disagree about issues, but if there's anything the Republican Party stands for, it's the Constitution. And a Muslim ban is a religious test. How do you know somebody's a yeah. Muslim if you ask them? You know, if somebody says, no, I'm actually a Quaker, I'm not a Muslim, what are you going to do? Ask them like trivia questions about right. William Penn? I don't know. How do you find out? It's a test. So that didn't happen. And I know why it didn't happen. In part, they were worried about Trump running as an a independent, as he was continuing to threaten to do. Also, they thought Trump was going to lose. 
You know, I mean, that was everything what the 16 primary was about. Yeah. All you had to do was get one on one with Trump and you were going to win if you were a candidate. Because, I mean, look, let's don't be ridiculous. The Republican Party is never going to nominate a guy that talks in public about having sex with his daughter. You know, I mean, that's just not going to happen. But it did happen. And then that person got elected president. Um, so I lay the fault at the party because had the party stood up and said no, and at every time the party's had a chance to turn, to stand against Donald Trump, they've gone the other direction. If after the, the 20 election, I mean, everybody knew within 24 hours, Trump had definitely lost, but say, wait until four days, whatever it was, till you know, the networks definitely called it. All the Republican establishment, elected officials needed to do was have their calm shot put out a statement congratulating the president elect the United States. Now, you know, in the history of defending democracy, that's a pretty low bar. Yeah, yeah. You know, they didn't have to go and like charge a machine gun nest or, you know, it's not like my dad who spent three years fighting in the South Pacific, Twin Eight Island landings, and then came home and never talked about it like, you know, hundreds of thousands of others. No, but they couldn't do that. And once Donald Trump had sent a mob into their workplace, to try to kill them, they still couldn't do it. So, I mean, that's sort of the ultimate test, I think, right? If somebody sends, organizes a mob that then comes into your workplace and tries to kill you or your colleagues, and you still won't hold them accountable, we really think there's going to be some principle that they're going to cross. <laughs> you go, yeah, well, that was bad. But what about his position on, like, you know, aid to Ukraine? <laughs> no. I mean, if you're okay with somebody trying to kill you, then that's kind of the bottom test. Um, and the party has just completely failed. And I don't think we've ever seen anything like it in modern history. But is that from the funding? Because, I mean, again, the, the, the other thing that you, you, you point to uh, you know, is, is the financing, Finance the financiers, funds. the people that are, that are funding this movement. Um, and, you know, it's, what strikes me, too, is um, it's not just within the Republican Party. I mean, you see no labels. You see RFK Jr. You see... Cornell West, and you see like guys like Harlan Crow giving to a lot of these. You know, I mean, it seems like it, it, it's definitely all of them. Yeah, and Dean Phillips, right? Yeah, 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 and Dean Phillips too. So I'm, I'm just wanted to uh, get your take on. Well, here's the problem. I, here's the problem I have with that: that when people are leaving office and they're not going to stand ever again for election, right? right? They still can't call Trump out enough, and right. I just don't get it. And, you know, a lot of these are people I helped elect. A lot of them are friends of mine. And, you know, one of the things I've tried to do in this whole sort of moment is not blame others. The first line, and it was all a lie, is blame me. Because, I mean, I was part of this. You know, there, there are people that write these right. books about Washington that are like, if only they had listened to me. <laughs> it's like a genre. Right. <laughs> I couldn't write that book because they didn't listen to me. So... I mean, if, if one of the things that drew me, the values that drew me to the Republican Party was personal responsibility, I, 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 that was turned out to be just a marketing slogan, but I believed mm -hmm. it. So, you know, I've been careful not to, like, name this former client or name this person. But what do you do when, when you have no more political ambition, you're financially secure, and you still can't call Donald Trump out? You still can't stand there and do what Liz Cheney did or what Mitt Romney did. So, I mean... You can't say it's just that they're worried they're going to lose primaries or they're worried that they're not going to get funding. I think it's a deeper collapse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, cowards love company. 
And the reason that the party hates Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney is because they, those individuals remind them that there is a different way to go. And it really makes their rationalization of how to support Trump much more difficult. But they've been cut off from the money. I mean, they don't get any of the they, money. They, you know? They're not going to get any money. But the finances. I mean, that's part of the purge of the, you know, of of the rational members of the party. It's extremist, the donors. Yeah, extre- are, are getting extre- the money. Extremist movements tend to just become more extreme, and you have more right. purity tests. So that what the thing that really strikes me about the financiers in the Republican Party, two things. One. You know, there were a number of a lot of corporate donors said, OK, and we're not going to give money to those that voted not to certify the election. And, you know, some percentage of those actually stuck to that. But they turned around and gave money to the congressional committee, Republican congressional committee, right. which then turns around and gives money to the people that voted not to certify the election. Right. So it's kind of like this moral laundromat they can go to or the Republican senatorial committee. And what I don't get is why don't these these corporations. I mean, to be a CEO of a corporation in America is a pretty good deal now. And this party has become the heart of the pro-Putin movement in American politics. So would you rather be a CEO in Russia or a CEO in America? Why is it that you can't draw a line and say, no, this isn't in my best interest. It's not in my company's best interest. Because you're going to see what happens when you get a guy like DeSantis, who's sort of a second-generation Trump, you know, if I just woke you up or anybody in politics up and said, hey, the governor of Florida is in a fight with the happiness company. Yeah, you know, is that possible? Yeah. You would say, no, this is insane. You're in a fight with Disney? Disney? I mean, really? And yet Rod DeSantis did. And they won't stand up either. That's the amazing thing. And it's just, it's just amazing. So, and the other element is there is this weird quality of those who've supported candidates who end up in the Republican Party, individuals who are uniquely wealthy because of the American system, a Elon Musk, a Peter Thiel, the Koch brothers, you know, only in America could they have amassed this wealth and power. And yet they are determined to change the system that enabled them to do this. The Kochs were libertarians. Peter Thiel has said he doesn't believe in democracy. Elon Musk, you know, clearly doesn't believe in, in, in democracy. Um, and, and that's just weird. Weird. Because only in America could they have acquired this kind of power and money. Well, and they're closing the door behind him, basically, for lack of a better. Yeah, but they're like, it's like the tech pros, they have their own, you know, it's, a, I don't know what it is, but they're, they're involved in a lot of the, you know, funding a lot of this stuff, too. I mean, and it, 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 it makes... No sense, but you know, I I I would like to write an article, and I, I could argue this in front of the Oxford Union. It's an exaggeration, but it would be a fun argument to make, and I could stand by it. That PayPal, the accidental wealth created by PayPal, has done for the American civil fabric what the accidental wealth of cocaine did for Colombia, because the people who yeah, made- because they're all keep. Yeah, who made it there are all these the place doing these people. Um, and if, if no one, if you haven't read this brilliant biography of Peter Thiel called The Contrarian, it lays out the history of PayPal and how Peter Thiel, who was at Stanford, took the basically the staff of the Stanford Review, which was this hard right 
uh, publication, student publication like the Dartmouth Review. And he installed them at PayPal and gave them stock and gave them positions until finally like serious business people got involved and they go like, why is the common editor of the Stanford Review our business manager? But meanwhile, these people had made millions and millions and millions of dollars. And now they've been loose on the society. Yeah, and it's true. It's a very strange world that they live in. What what really strikes me is so say you're John Kerry. You lose a close race in 2004. If John Kerry had gone out and said, I'm going to refuse to uh, concede, I think Ohio was stolen, you know, some donor controlled the voting machines, the Democratic Party would not have stood with him. No. The donors of the Democratic Party would have been calling him frantically saying, have you lost your goddamn mind, John? Shut up. Concede. Yeah. And all the newspapers that endorsed him would be saying, yeah, we retract our endorsements. You know, thank God John Kerry didn't get elected president, which you didn't, by the way, John, you lost. But that didn't happen on the Republican Party. No, and that's like when you when the, you get these people doing oh the both parties they both are equally bad you know the the the, no. the both sides is and stuff it's like no no there's no way it would we not didn't nominate a guy like T Donald Trump we didn't cave to him we wouldn't, wouldn't have or you know if you it, it's just so, not so the same. Peter, Peter Thiel basically invented J D Vance candidacy right yeah and funded the hell and out funded of it J D Vance worked for him yeah. and so J D Vance goes out and says, in essence, that women should stay in abusive marriages and shouldn't get divorced because marriage is more important than just, you know, a woman being abused. Had he said that in the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party would have demanded that he retract it. They wouldn't have continued to fund it. But J.D. Vance could continue to say this because Peter Thiel was fine with that. And, that wasn't, and he's going to keep giving him money. Keep giving just, money. Yeah. Exactly. And when it, it gives it gives these financiers unique, there are wealthy, wealthy donors in the Democratic Party, right? And so much is said about George Soros or whatever. But they don't have the power that the wealthy figures do in the Republican Party because the Democratic Party still has guidelines, still has guardrails. There are certain things you can't say or do. And, you know, I make a case in this book. We hear a lot about all the oligarchs around Putin. But we have oligarchs. For some reason, we just don't call them that. Not yet, anyway. And I, I make the case that I think it's true that oligarchs in America are more powerful than they are in Russia. I mean, when Putin decided to invade Ukraine, right, lost the greatest ground war in Europe since World War II, he didn't ask these oligarchs permission. They would have said, hey, this is going to be bad for business. Don't do this. He knew that if they objected in public, he'd just kill them. And the ones that did, he did kill. So <laughs> yep. when you're in the, uh, in the Republican Party, you... You really have to court these oligarchs. You, they have much more power. Um, and as a result, they have much more power in kind of the national political conversation in America. Yeah, so you have, so there you have the propagandists, you have the, the party support, and then you've got the financiers talking about, it, and then you get to the last two. And these two are kind of becoming, well, should be obvious to, to everybody. Your last two of the five are, are legal theories that legitimize what they're doing. And it strikes me on that one that when you see the, you know, Mike Johnson become Speaker of the uh, of the House, 
uh, who is literally unanimously, one of the architects. Unanimously yeah. speaking. Yes, of unanimously, but the legal kind of made the legal argument, fig leaf argument that all of them were able to hang on to when they voted to not certify the election. So, you know, that one's sort of even more obvious now, even though Trump's lawyers are all admitting, uh, pleading guilty and saying it was it was a lie. Uh, the, the party has lifted up unanimously a speaker who, who led the legal I theory. Know, the, the, literally in America, they're sending people to jail who said this, and the Republican Party still is saying we're going to elect the speaker who said it. I mean, but no, but it's it, it's again like it, it, you know, it, you just you lay out these five things that they need that you need to pull this off, and you know we're seeing that one fall into place. Not just there, but the way courts are ruling. Well, I, on things. I uh, listen. Like, I, let's talk about this because I think of these five, this might be the most important. There is a huge movement to change how we vote in America. And the root of it is race. 85% of Trump's coalition is white in a country that is 59% white, less so since we've been talking. And of a, you know, we're headed to minority-majority country. In a way, we're already there. Those who are 16 years and younger than the majority are non-white. So odds are really, really, really good they're going to be non-white when they turn 18. And that's what scares the Republican Party. And so... Look at the Federalist Society. Started 1984, a weekend retreat in New Haven with an innocuous title like The Future of the Conservative Judiciary in America. And out of that quaint little weekend seminar grew the Federalist Society. And it's hard to say the Federalist Society didn't win, right? You look around. So who ended up running the Federalist Society? A guy named Leonard Leo. Leonard Leo was given two years ago $1.6 billion in the largest fund... Uh, political contribution in the history of America. Uh, an obscure but obviously very successful individual that owned 100% of his electronics company in Detroit. He gave the money to a trust that was formed in the living room of a former clerk of Judge Thomas. And that money went to that trust. The trust then sold the assets of that company to an Irish uh, holding company for $1.6 billion. That allowed that trust then to have mostly tax-free $1.6 billion. And that is now funding Leonard Leo's efforts to change democracy in America. And they're, while we're, you know, every weekend they're having meetings about this. And they do it under the radar screen as much as possible. And they're doing it very patiently. Some are sort of more high-profile cases where they try to elect secretary of states in states that aren't appointed by the governor and states that are appointed by the governor, secretary of states, to try to elect the governors. But it is a fundamental effort to, in essence, curate the vote. And you'll know the Republican Party is a healthy political party when it says the more people that vote in America, the better we're going to do. And that's not what's happening. And it's not going to happen anytime soon. It's not going to happen. That, not that. It's, it's not. It's not going to happen. You know, there, there is a woman named Cleta Mitchell who used to be a very normal person. Something happened to her along the way. She's an attorney. She was in Trump's office when he called Raffensperger. I'm astounded she hasn't been indicted, which raises a lot of questions. I sort of wonder if she's cooperating with them. Um, I mean, at one point, she basically picks up the phone from Trump because she doesn't think Trump is doing a good enough job explaining this. <laughs> Talks to Ravensburg. But she's out there leading these seminars every weekend. 
uh, they obviously don't invite the press, but because everything leaks in America now, there are recordings of this that have leaked. And one of her standard opening lines is, if an organization has democracy in its name, they're not our friends. And they're just laying it out there. Well, even the speaker is says speaker. we're not a democracy. Yeah, I mean, he's out there saying we're not a democracy and that, that you know, we're a republic. And, we, and the way oh. he reads that is it's minority rule. Yeah, that this whole um, nutty, I get into this in the book, this whole nutty theory that hangs on a couple of obscure references in the Federalist Papers. And at the root of this is this theory or the sort of ultimate manifestation of this is this theory that a state legislature can overturn not just a popular vote for a president, but overturn any election. That in essence, the state legislators were supposed to, it was the intent of the founding fathers, the state legislatures would form, perform the similar role to electors in the original design. That we're gonna vote for electors because the public can't pick a president, but they can pick smart people, men, wealthy, owners, white, who are then going to select the president. Now, there was there was a test case before the Supreme Court on this legal theory, judicial, legal judiciary theory, of, and it lost six to three. And there was kind of, understandably, like some sort of celebration about this. But you go, wait a second. That means three people on the Supreme Court think that any state legislature could overturn popular votes. Right. They're a lot better off than where they were in 1984 when they started with this little weekend seminar at Yale. Yeah. And they're very patient. Yeah. And they they also have the fifth thing, which is I just want to, you know, get to yep. uh the shock troops. Yep. You know, and it's January 6th and it's MAGA, and it's that we see it every day. This may be one that's it's more obvious to people, but they they so that's they they have the propagandists, they have a major party, they have the financing. They've got the legal theories, whether it's playing off uh, obscure sentences in the Federalist Papers or the or the Speaker, uh, you, you know, and their attorneys who are now pleading guilty, uh, Trump's attorneys now pleading guilty. But then they they also have the fifth element. All those five have to be be available and working, and they've got them all working right now. There's, and you know, one of the the you know disturbing, most disturbing aspects is more and more people come forward and talk about this. Mitt Romney does now. Um, others who have left Congress who voted to certify the Republicans, they have talked about the threats they got. I mean, Mitt Romney right. says that he talked to people on the floor of the Senate and they said, I, I, "I'd like to vote this way." Ms. Cheney says this, "I'd like to vote this way, but I'm afraid." So if you're in a point where legislators can't vote the way they know is in concurrence with the oath of office they took because of physical intimidation for themselves or their family, you're not really living in a democracy. I mean, this is, this is what happened in Colombia with, you know, the, 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 yeah, you're the, a hostage. The narco cartels. And, you know, yeah. those people who showed up on January 6th, you know, they, they were not who the, the history of right wing militia movements in America tends to be, people who are sort of on the outcast out of society. You know, the David Koresh's, the weird people, the Randy we uh, Weavers, people who are not financially successful, that something has kind of gone wrong in their life, and they've latched onto this. But 
we see over and over the people on January 6th, these, these were successful middle-class people. I mean, hell, some people took private jets to overthrow the government. Yeah. You know, America is so terrible, I have to take my private jet that I was able to buy into the American system so I can overthrow the government. Like, say that again? So in the sort of history of how to deal with these, these uh, militia movements, right-wing movements, there has been a sort of blueprint that they need to be more integrated in society. They need to have more economic opportunities. That's not what this is about at all. And it makes it very different and very unique. You know, there were not a lot of lawyers making a lot of money in the KKK. They may have supported the KKK, but they weren't going out there on Friday nights and putting themselves in a sheet. They're going to the country club. And this is a very unique and different movement. Is that, is it, White national Christian. I mean, what do you, what do you, what do you ascribe it to? I mean, is it is it? I think it goes. Driving. Listen, it? I think it goes to the fundamental relationship you see between yourself and your government. So you go back to Ronald Reagan. Say what you will about Ronald Reagan, and look, there there are a lot of of the dark side of Ronald Reagan, particularly involving the use of race that is still playing out, but. Ronald Reagan took the view that to be born in America, you had won life's lottery. There was inequality in America, certainly, but no one was disadvantaged in life for having been born an American. Trump took the exact opposite. It, to be an American is to be a victim, is to be a sucker, is to be a chump. And there are these powerful forces out there like Canada. They're taking advantage of us, and I'm <laughs> going to settle the score. And once you believe that, it really changes your entire relationship to your government. So if you believe that Joe Biden wasn't legally elected and Joe Biden is about to take office, it gives you not only a right, but some feel an obligation to do whatever necessary to stop that. And that's when you see these disturbing polls to show that Republicans are more worried about the future of democracy than Democrats. It's because Republicans think that we don't have a democracy now because Joe yep. Biden is president. Yep. And you know what really, really it makes me the most angry in, about this is who is it in America who really has a right to be a victim, call themselves victims, who have been murdered, tortured, raped, laws passed against them to stop them from participating in the American system? African-Americans. And yet did African-Americans storm the Capitol and try to take it? No. They marched in Washington, but they registered voters. They stayed in the system. They didn't abandon their faith in America the way that these people have. And I have no sympathy for these people. I don't, I, I don't care, I don't care to, uh, about the guy standing in the Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt. I don't need to understand that guy. And I think there's too much that we effort put by this vast sort of journalist effort to try to understand Trump voters. And it's, it's, to a large degree, a reluctance to just call them racist. And I don't understand so, this. And where do you see this all going? I mean, we're, we're less than 53 weeks away. Next Tuesday is 52 weeks till Election Day. Iowa's in, I believe, like 74 days from where we're, when we're recording this. You know, what? where do you see this all going? I know in the book, you make the case that... Uh, you, we can't wait for anybody to save us. It's 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 all of us. I learned that, that uh, from you, Joe. That have to do. Nobody else is going to do the work. To quote Joe Trippi. Yeah, and so I just wanted to get you know to close this out. Get your 
give us your view of what of how what we need to do or how how we navigate to to election day and, and uh, come out the other side of democracy in twenty twenty after twenty twenty four. Well, look, as somebody that spent almost thirty years pointing out flaws in the Democratic Party, I can say this without reservation, without any qualms at all. There's only one pro democracy party in America, and that's the Democratic Party. And the solution here is pretty simple. It's pretty simple. We have to crush the current Republican Party over and over. Pain is the only teacher here in politics. There's nothing inside the Republican Party that all of a sudden a light bulb is going to go off and they go, oh, well, we can't do this. You have to, only hope is that they will get to a point where they realize they can't win because they do not represent the majority of the country, which they don't. So I think the solution is simple. We have to punish the Republican Party as it is. Now, there's some good Republicans out there. Don't give me a, I mean, look, I, the, some of these governors, right? I work for Larry Hogan in Maryland. Great governor, very popular. Democrats love him. Everybody loved the guy. I work for Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. I work for, for Bill Scott in Vermont. But those guys are not the party. And those guys can't even pick their own party chairman as governor. They're so out of touch with their party. So, you know, a party that has no room for a Cheney is not a party worth saving. And you have to defeat the current incarnation. And, you know, we've talked about this, Joe. What is it we used to fight about in races? Like whether or not the capital gains tax was going to be 35% of 28%. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like- Yeah, marginal know, tax rates. Yeah, it's like arguing about yeah. your cholesterol count in a knife fight. I mean, it's, it's like, really? Maybe that's important, but I don't really think at the moment it's the biggest issue here. But That's what the Lincoln Project, I, I you know, we have a very specific mission to try to talk to these Republicans who a, a lot of them voted for, for, for Biden and to- help them stay with Biden, who I think has been a great president, which is another another podcast. But the solution is not complicated. And there's no magic solution. None of the stuff that like no labels is coming up with. Oh, let's just create a third party. Right. That's that's just another way to say you want to reelect Donald Trump. Yeah, because there's so many middle of the road MAGA supporters who who are really looking for Right. Yeah, looking for unity and reaching across party lines. There's so many of them. You know, it's crazy. Yeah, I was going to vote for. But you know, you're the one thing. It's like you said you woke up, and I was there too. I really thought of 2020 that same night. I think I, I, I I thought, man, uh, this is great. I finally yeah, I'm going to retire and you know and, and be out of this. But I think you're right. It, 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 it's going to take multiple defeats. It won't even if after if we can pull this out in 2024, it's still going to, yeah. you know, they're still going to be there. We're still going to have to to deliver a couple of more blows before maybe maybe they. I you think know, 32. They, they if we up. can hold on to what we have till 32, I think we'll be okay. Um, you know, on the hopeful front, I think it's very. Different. I'm retiring before that. Man. I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you know, I'll fight as long as I can, but we, you know, uh, on the hopeful front, I do think it's very difficult to find Biden twenty voters who have switched to Trump twenty four. I'm sure they're out yeah. there, but they're not a lot of them. Yeah, and I agree with that. You know, you look at the numbers among younger voters, and they are overwhelmingly pro democracy. And despite all the lessons that, you know, we took as a truism coming up in politics, the younger voters don't vote in large numbers. They are voting in large numbers. And that and is that is our salvation. Yeah. And I think that if we can just pass the torch to 
those younger voters, the country will be in good shape. And immigrants. I mean, immigrants in the history of yeah, America and, and, have, saved, have saved America. And the Trump base is... It's old. Is getting older yeah. and and will be leaving the the electorate as they as Gen Z, um, yeah, and this younger generation that that doesn't buy into the racism or the xenophobia or you know and uh, uh, and uh, or the anger, think, yeah, and, and and who I keep saying this, you know, uh, have a much different view about gun violence and uh, in terms of you know it. They they did mass shooting drills all the way through through their for them, you know, elementary and middle school. You know, it and, was what duck and, and cover was for us who grew up in the in the cold. Yeah, war. With, with in the cold war, and I just think they have a different. They understand common sense rules on that stuff, and so I just think, look, there. The, yeah, I I agree with you about how long how far we have to go, but I am hopeful. I think there. We say this. They keep doing the crazy. We keep doing the work, and. Um, there's more of us than there are of them. We just got to make do the work and make sure everybody gets out there and we stay unified and we don't let no labels and these other third party efforts uh, divide the pro democracy vote. There is only one party that's pro democracy in in the country right now. It's it's that it, 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 everybody needs to unify behind. And 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 don't expect or demand perfection from that yeah. party. Yeah. Well. And you know, there's going to be stuff that you don't like. You know, there's a lot of talk about how Republicans are better at messaging. I've always thought that was sort of a um, both true but inadequate because it's much easier to message to a very homogeneous crowd, and and yeah, the, Republican voters tend to be. It's like putting on a concert. Yeah, Biden has to hold for, the whole thing together. All whole of it, thing together. All that yeah. diversity, all the big tent, you know, and the country, and try to pull as many people over to save the democracy as we can. Um, right. Look, while being president. Yeah. Anyway, hey, I think that's a good place to to close. Uh, thanks, Stuart, for coming on, and thanks everyone for listening to that trippy show. Uh, Stuart, where can people get your book? We'll put a, a link to it in our oh, show notes. Uh, uh, you know, anywhere uh, books are sold, I'm a great supporter of independent bookstores, and uh, uh, couldn't couldn't encourage you enough to go there. We'll, we we need we need to keep those going. Yeah, we'll include a link in in our show notes and a reminder that this podcast will always be free with support from our advertisers. This podcast is part of Resolute Square, something that that Stuart and, and I and Alex uh, have worked to try to get off the ground with our friends Reed uh, Galen and, and Rick Wilson. Check out and a host of other really good writers uh, that you should check out. Check it out at uh, ResoluteSquare.com slash Trippy. Please subscribe to that Trippy show. Leave a review on Apple or wherever you listen. You can always send us a question to that Trippy show at gmail.com or leave us a question in a review on iTunes. Remember, the conspiracy to end America. Five ways my old party is driving our democracy to autocracy. Stuart Stevens, it's a book. I think is a must read for anybody who wants to get to victory in 2024 and understand what's going on. Stuart, thanks for being with us.